The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to this edition of Scorebox. You've got Jeff Cutmore, you've got Karen Char, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. So, beaten down tech stock surge in the Nasdaq's best start to a year since 2001, whilst the S&P 500 caps off its best January in four years. Elsewhere, China's factory activity contracting for the sixth straight month, according to a private sector survey in stark contrast to more upbeat government data. Digital ad struggles weigh on Snap, with shares plunging in extended trade, dragging down Meta ahead of the social media giant's fourth quarter report card due out later today. Huge crowds march across France, raising pressure against President Macron's pension reform as industrial action sweeps the continent, with the UK set to see its biggest walkout in 12 years. Yeah, very good morning, everybody. I'm joining you from Novartis's headquarters here in Basel. The company just coming through with earnings. The headlines, Novartis continuing to grow with core margin expansion and achieving important innovation milestones. We're going to talk some more about these numbers in the next few minutes. And then later on at 8.15 Central European time, I have an interview with the CEO, Dr. Vaz Narasimhan. Make a point of staying with Squawk Box for that conversation. Right, I have a lot of detail from Novartis, so let me just go through this very methodically before we get out to Jeff, who's going to give us all the analysis on it. The fourth quarter, good morning, by the way, everybody. Good morning, Karen. Good Lovely morning. Uh, fourth quarter core operating income has come in at 4.03 billion US dollars versus the estimate of 3.8 billion US dollars. So a big beat there. The core net income, 3.25 billion US dollars. Um, the fourth quarter EPS, 0.69 versus an estimate of 1.1. So we have to see what the exceptionals are there. The core EPS in US dollars, 1.52 bucks versus estimate of 1.4. Net sales, slightly lower than expected, 12.69 billion as opposed to the estimate of 13.02. Right, so we have a lot of other commentary with these numbers. And again, I'll go into some detail here. Uh, Novartis continues to grow with further core margin expansion and achieves important innovation milestones. Sandoz sales were in line with the prior year. Uh, 0% on a constant currency basis, negative 8% in US dollars, with continued growth in biopharmaceuticals. Novartis previously announced up to $15 billion share buyback, ongoing, $4.9 billion still to be executed. Uh, the share dividend, uh, 3.2 Swissy per share, that is an increase of 3.2% proposed for 2022. 2023 guidance group expected to grow sales low to mid single digit and core operating income mid single digit. And finally, I'll just give you expects growth sales low to mid single digit and core operating. In fact, that's virtually the same headline, isn't it? But uh, that's a 2023 guidance as well. And um, there is a lot more in there as well. I'll give you one more line. Why not? Um, I am expected to grow 
sell. Again, that's the same thing. Okay, so um, to become a pure play innovative medicines company on track for that as well. Let's get to Jeff. He's been listing and digesting and looking at the numbers himself as well. So um, a mixed bag in some ways, perhaps some disappointment on the sales figure, Jeff, but actually in terms of some of the other numbers, um, quite encouraging. What do you make of it? Good morning to you. Yeah, very good morning, Steve. And um, we've just been handed the, the, the set of numbers as well as you've been combing through them. So I've been having a good look here. And I think the point to make is we will continue to get slightly muddy numbers for a while here because, as everybody knows, Novartis is in a transition phase at the moment. And the CEO, you know, announced those significant layoffs last year and, of course, the announcement that the focus would continue to be in taking this business towards a more pure play biopharmaceutical company with key drug lines. And um, this is what uh, Varus uh, Narasimhan's dream is. And he believes that there is an opportunity for this business ultimately to be re-rated by the markets as it becomes a much more focused company. Now, we'll have a conversation with him about where Sandoz is going, because that was the key announcement in the latter part of last year, that this generics business was going to be spun off. Um, There was some speculation last year as to whether there would be major private equity companies that might ally to buy this business. But at this stage, I think we're still wondering what ultimately that spin-off will mean in financial terms for Novartis. There obviously will be a big bump to come as income comes in from that deal. But obviously that will be later on in the year. Just focusing down on this fourth quarter, as you point out, the headline uh, revenue number is a little light on the expectation. The market apparently looking for something over 13 billion here. And as you say, they've delivered 12.7 billion. But the challenge, as always, I think, is the world is coming out of the pandemic. There is a a refocus on non-communicable non-communicable diseases. It's a little early in the morning to get some of these uh, uh, long medical phrases out. But ultimately, a move away from the whole focus on COVID in the emergency around the pandemic and back to those um, awful diseases uh, around cancers, uh, lung diseases, and so on and so forth. Uh, So the question really is, um, how does this portfolio of key drugs now, these pure play drugs that the company is working working on, how do they turn into the blockbusters uh, that Novartis hopes they will become going forward? And that will be a lot of the focus of our conversation here. In terms of the core operating income at $4 billion, I think the company will be happy with that number. And the net income line in at $1.5 billion, perhaps they would have liked a, a little bit higher there. But again, I think they, um, at, at this stage, um, will be uh, telling the market that um, they are satisfied that there is momentum and strength through this quarter as we come into the new year uh, 2023. And obviously, we, we spoke to Vaz back up the mountain in Davos, and he had a lot of things to say about how he felt governments were not 
refocusing enough on the potential risks of a, another pandemic going forward. And perhaps um, there's been a, a shortage of drugs in the US and Europe. And that is a, a space that a company like Novartis hopes increasingly to fill as, as I say, the, the market again starts to refocus on all those other diseases that were perhaps neglected during the pandemic, Steve. Jeff, uh, that's terrific. Thank you very much for running us through all the numbers. And of course, uh, we're looking forward to hearing from Vaz Narasimhan later on when you speak to him. 8.15 CET, that's a first on CNBC. What we've got on uh, the numbers front this morning in the Spanish banking space, BBVA also reporting numbers for the fourth quarter and for the year. So just run you through the quarter that they've had so far. Amla's setting up for a net profit figure of roughly $1.54 billion. What's crossed today? $1.58 billion. So uh, they're in and slightly above expectations. For the fourth quarter gross income, $6.52 billion. Again, uh, that is uh, roughly in line, if not a tad above, where the market had been sitting. Net interest income that uh, final three months of the year, $5.34 billion. We've seen that in a number of banks across Europe lately, where the net interest income has been the part that has been a huge contributor to the earnings. Net fees and commissions, that could be where it is light on, but the number is still solid, $1.32 billion in the final quarter. In terms of what we've got uh, across the rest of the business for the full year, net interest income at 19.15 billion euros. Uh, the company uh, is talking about a share buyback program, execution of 422 million euro share buyback subject to obtaining corresponding regulatory authorizations. Uh, it's also um, looking to uh, distribute 0.31 euros gross per share to be paid out in April as a final dividend. Just want to bring up at this point in the cycle, the bad loan ratio, ratio at the end of December. There was a time, you know, there was a place when we were talking about uh, a fairly rough economic cycle, the cleanup that was taking place in the Spanish banking sector in particular. And here we are going into more tough times that can uh, obviously compress the balance sheets of businesses and domestic retail consumers. But a low starting point here, the bad loan ratio at 3.4% at the end of December. So for me, question marks as to just how much that rises at this point in the cycle where we go over the next 12 months. In terms of uh, other metrics we typically look at, fully loaded CT1 capital ratio, 12.6% at the end of December. Uh, so the company uh, holding on to a fair amount of cash at this stage. And uh, there are also some other decent metrics coming in at ROT, 15.3% at the end of December. Yeah, that I, looks fairly solid, you know, right? I was, I was looking, as you were listening, and, and I, was reading, I was waiting for the waiting for the bombshell. And do you know what? They are wonderfully stable results. There's nothing dramatically... At this stage of the cycle, you start worrying about the Spanish banks because historically this is where things have started to get a bit worrying with the home loan costs, with the unemployment rate, with the delinquencies rate. And actually, the one I was most interested in was... Um, sees 2023 expenses in Mexico growing at double digit, maintaining positive jaws. And, and positive jaws, you know, your, your income growth rate minus your expenses growth rate as well. And so there's a lot that's in there. You, the rote you absolutely mentioned as well, solid uh, in the mid-teens as well, something yeah. that a lot of European banks struggle with. And I was looking at the valuations company, pay. trades at 0.8, so it's towards the top end of the European banks, wouldn't register as one of the top US banks, but obviously we have a slower growth rate and different kind of um, price-to-book ratio on a lot of these companies. So I think they are pretty, I wasn't going to say boring, they're not boring, but they are solid results and with no great scares from what I can uh, see. The only one is one that a lot of investors know already about and that's around Turkey and the line here is highly uncertain environment, Contra contribution 2023 should be similar to that in 2022. So 
again, you play in enough markets, then you have issues that crop up in various different parts of the world. But that seems to be the one that they've struggled with the most versus other places. Yeah, costs However, to grow around average inflation, focus on positive jaws. So you can't really do much more than that. If you're if your income growth, your are our lights flickering? It looks like on the. Oh, maybe just my monitor. Uh, I've got a strange monitor that's just <laughs> flickering away. I thought, wow, something's going on the mainframe. Um, but yeah, but yeah, if you're increasing your growth uh, at a pace that's increasing more than your cost base, mm. then what more can you ask well, in an inflationary environment? This is an interesting week, isn't it, as we also then explore what this means for net interest income for European banks. We've got the ECB this week, so that'll be a point of conversation with the BBVA chair, Carlos Torres Villalejo, join us later on to discuss the numbers. Don't miss that first on a CNBC interview at 8.45 CET. Um, right, quick look at the Asian indices as well. Um, we have positive momentum across the board. Nikkei's a little bit flat as we speak. Hang Seng up eight tenths of one percent, and the ASX 200 three tenths of a percent higher. Chinese factory activity shrank in January, but at a slower pace after Beijing relaxed COVID restrictions late last year. The Kaishin uh, Manufacturing PMI came in at uh, 49.2 for the month. That is up from 49 in December, but still below expectations. Pressure on manufacturers has eased amid China's reopening, but more COVID cases amongst workers has uh, hampered activity. Karen. Well, coming up on the show, major indices kick off the year in the green, while the NASDAQ, uh, of course, is the one that we've been watching for you, hosting its best of January since the height of the dot-com bubble. And if you want to know more about Jeff's corporate odyssey through the Alps as well, well, that's all on the Squawk Box podcast, plus plenty more on this Wednesday edition of that podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Well, January were often viewed as the month that sets the tone for the rest of the year and a huge focus on the performance as a result of the course of the first month. Six plus percent high for the S&P 500. Very firm trade is what we witnessed. Dragged along with the tech sector. Very big contributor to the gains that we saw there. On the down, you can see the comparison. Still solid performance during the month of January, but 2.8 percent. Not quite the same level that we saw on the S&P 500. But it was the Nasdaq right out in front. at rally and beaten up areas of the market. Stocks that were sold off aggressively into the end of last year, bouncing back for January 10.6% higher. Uh, worth noting, even in session yesterday, Microsoft, one of the big movers we saw for the major markets. US tech itself, let's just take a close-up look under the lens. This is how the performance of the key stocks played out. Apple, 11% higher. The Cupertino giant, very much at the forefront of the trade. Microsoft, somewhat left behind. I mentioned this yesterday as we're looking to round out the month that we had that uh, negative insight into its earnings. This first slowdown in six years is what we've seen, 3.3% damaging uh, the trade for that stock over the month of January. Netflix, uh, very much uh, a strong trade, 23% higher for Meta. Again, counting down to earnings later on, but uh, it seems investors have been willing to pile back in. It was Tesla 
that uh, was very much right out in front, that 40% rally that we saw in the stock. So regrouping from some of the lows, pushing higher. And that, of course, had a fairly decent impact on the ARK Innovation ETF. It's best month ever. You can see the performance 27% high. Big momentum names in the tech space is what this story tells you. And we've got a lot of zeros to also show you there as well. But you get the picture. The uh, pathway, very strong here. And as we take a look at ARK uh, on a, just a quick programming note, don't forget the ARK Invest CEO and CIO Kathy Wood will be joining our U.S. colleagues later today following the best month ever for her flagship ETF. Catch that interview at 13.30 CET. A big question as to what happens next. And to the dollar trade. Well, dollar has been on the back foot for the month of January. We've seen that greenback decline continue. Investors uh, keeping an eye on that reopening theme out of China, some of the risk on appetite, but also what's going to happen when it comes to the Fed and just what the pathway looks like from here in terms of rates. Of course, it is Fed Day today. The 1.3% lower trade is what we had on the dollar index for the month of January. And to Treasuries, uh, a quick look at how the month played out for the uh, bond market. As you can see, 3.5. We started the month much higher, close to the 3.9% uh, level, and faded a uh, fairly decent amount for a safe haven over the course of January, down 9.3%. Uh, Steve, uh, of course, uh, it is a huge day today in markets, no doubt. Someone oh, knows. my goodness me. I was just looking at the day today, let alone um, the central bank action as well. And it is quite extraordinary. We're going to get such a huge data dump stateside as well. Um, you know, eight strong pieces of data, which on their own would, would hold up uh, a lot of interest for our viewers. Plus, of course, all the focus on the decision day for the Fed. Expected to hike rates by a quarter percentage point. The expected move follows a half percent point increase in December and would be the smallest of eight increases in the federal funds target rate range since the first hike uh, of the cycle last March. The decision is due at 8 p.m. Central European time. Well, Moritz Kramer is the chief economist and head of research at LBBW Bank and joins us now. Moritz, really nice to see you. Look, it doesn't matter that I'm confused about what's going on economically. It doesn't matter that I'm confused, uh, as are the markets, about whether we are going to see a recession, whether inflation has peaked, whether the central banks are pushing it too far. The problem is... A lot of the smartest people on the planet are very confused as well. And that really is quite worrying. So we're in kind of a very unknown environment at the moment. What do you think about the central banks and what they're doing at the moment and whether they're pushing things too far? I think the risk of pushing too far is increasing. I mean, we've been, especially in Europe, sort of lamenting a lot about the ECB getting started pretty late, which it did. But once it did, it did everything, I think, pretty right. And the same for the Fed. I mean, the Fed is further along. And I... I have the consensus view as well. I cannot tell you anything extraordinary here. So 25 basis points now, and then maybe another 25 basis points, and then we're done. It's so hard for central bankers because, you know, you're, you're seeing these volatile movements in the inflation rate, which are driven by exogenous factors. So the inflation was driven up by energy, and now it's driven down by energy. So there's a real risk if energy prices keep dropping that we might actually be seeing an undershoot of inflation. Okay, so that's one component. And it's one component that so many people got wrong with their transitory view as well. So now driven down by energy, but also at the same time driven up in the opposite direction by some of the demand side factors that were so negated during that, should we say, erroneous transitory era as well. So I hear what you're saying about energy prices. Gas is still coming down. Oil has remained where it is for quite a while now. But what are the demand side factors that the central banks are most worried about? I think what they're most worried about clearly is a uh, price-wage spiral. And I say deliberately price-wage because it's very clear what came first here. Um, 
So, you know, once everyone convinced themselves that maybe it's not transitory, it's, 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 it's more permanent, maybe now we find out maybe it's more transitory than we think now. Um, because as the, um, as the oil prices go down, and, and that's combined with the hawkish rhetoric that we see from the central banks, we might actually see a more moderate increase in, in wage costs in particular. And that's something that the central banks will be watching. And they will be watching increasingly, I'm pretty sure, the core inflation rate. Because that tends to lag the headline inflation. I just want to pick up on that point because, you know, this time could be different. I think we all go back over history and try and make these comparisons. But what we've seen this time around the labour market has been simply extraordinary. That The great resignation, the trends that that's brought on. And lots of conversations the last couple of weeks in Davos that some industries are still incredibly tight. Uh, others are seeing some improvement. So it's not really even across the board to make those general assessments as to whether the labour market is healing. But when it comes to the overall numbers, you've still got, what, 200,000 jobs created. The Fed wants 150-odd thousand. We're not in that territory yet, are we? Well, the labour market is very strong on both sides of the Atlantic, and, and that's what is different this time. So whether we go into a recession or not, I think the US will probably dodge it. Um, the Eurozone, slightly, Germany will go into recession. But even if we have near recessionary environment, this is the first time this happens at full employment. So we cannot really expect sort of the concern about, you know, the recession leading to major layoffs. You have lots of headlines of layoffs in the US, but it's really concentrated in the tech sector. Overall, the labor market is very strong. And that's something that the Fed is worried about. And that's why they're trying to give guidance that, and, and try to counter this this uh, speculation about early rate cuts because they don't want to encourage that the strong labor market will lead to further um, high uh, wage increases which will then perpetuate the, the inflation impetus. So recession or near recession with full employment that's really a new experience for central bankers and all of us. Can we get into the playbook? Because there is a feeling today if we don't see anything but super hawkish language from Jay Powell, that could put a glimmer of hope back into markets and then we just see risk on in various quarters of the market. That said, it feels as though there's this delicate positioning because the markets are saying we get to 4.9% on rates by about June. Then yes. we start you know, a pivot of cut by later in the year and Jay Powell is saying, look, we get to 5.1% and there's no cut coming. So at some point there seems to be messaging needs to be on point as to what the uh, pathway is going to be. How do you manage those things as a central banker, do you think, at this point where you've got the market on point, you don't create violence in certain asset classes because the messaging is wrong? Well, no one ever said it's easy, is it? <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think what, what Powell, but also Christine Lagarde tomorrow will try to do, they will try to reaffirm their hawkish stance in order to prevent sort of the, the, the price increases to become more entrenched than they already are. And the U.S., they're further ahead because the core rate has been falling already for three months. In the euro area, we're still at, at peak core inflation. So um, I also believe that there is a high likelihood of a rate cut later in the year in the US, certainly not in, in Europe. Um, but that's certainly not the message that Powell will want to give. He'll want to give, say, we're on the ball, we're continuing this campaign, and don't think sort of we're, we're relenting. But and I, I think m many market participants are looking through this and they're, uh, they're making a trajectory. Where's inflation going to go? And if we're approaching the target rate pretty quickly on inflation, um, you know, there is no, no real reason for the Fed to keep rates that high. So once you have the crossover that the inflation rate falls below the federal funds rates, this um, position will become more and more untenable. Um, 
The team's got a chart for me, uh, and, and it just typifies how beautifully behaved the bond markets are. Look at this. The, the beautiful, the, the, despite the fact that they've got a hawkish ECB, the Bund BTP spread is beautifully behaved. The BTP's at 4.28. Okay, it's an elevated level, but the spread over the Bund, everybody's relaxed in the paddock, so to speak, as well. Are we wrong to be that calm on, on where the BTP's are trading, given the enormous debt load of these countries? And I don't just mean the sovereign. Yeah, well, the BTP is always one policy mistake away from a major sell-off. Um, and in that sense, I think in the euro area, we're pretty grateful for the example that the UK has given us last October. Basically, so, okay, if you do something outright reckless, the market's going to punish you. So there was a lot of nervousness in the market about the new government in Rome. What yeah. are they going to do? Because they, they, they didn't really have a clear economic, financial policy agenda. Um, but until now, they've, they've held you know, they've held the fort pretty well, I yeah. think. Yeah, I'm just back from my third trip to Italy since they've come in, and every CEO and business person I speak to in Italy is like, wow, this is, this is unnerving. We're actually okay. They're not yeah. doing anything crazy. They're yeah. talking to us, which is more than some governments do, dare I say it, close to home, UK. Uh, and um, they're actually talking to business. Uh, and they're listening and they don't want to make policy mistakes, which is very different from the government that we all talked about beforehand. Moritz, I'm afraid we've got to go. Well, we haven't. You have. Uh, in fact, unless you want to do this show for the next two and a half hours, I, I, can, I can just... That's a very generous offer. Maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> I see you anchoring. You've got that kind of, you know, that look, that Cutmore-esque look about you. Uh, Moritz Graven, nice to see you, sir. This is the seats over here. This is the, the middle seat. The yeah, we we'll park him there. Yeah, as we, as we, as we parked uh, one of the others the other day. I don't know if that went down well with the big man. Uh, Moritz Kramer, nice to see <laughs> you, sir. You, Thanks very much. Moritz Kramer, the Chief Economist and Head of Research at LBBW Bank. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.